Thank you for checking out the Missio Day Humble Park podcast and joining us as we join God as He makes all things new. We are excited to pursue His heart for the greatest city on earth in the center of the city. Thank you for being here. Um, as Bam said, we'll be talking about humility today. So. Buckle your seatbelts, it's going to get a bit crazy. Turns out, humility is one of those subjects, one of those attributes, it just permeates scripture. It's everywhere, from the first chapters of Genesis to the end of Revelation. So, we could be here for a while, but I'll try and edit as I go. The first result, Adam and Eve. They sin in the garden. Their first sin, uh, following the original sin, is to cover themselves. And it seems like an act of shame, but it's actually one of pride. It was the first layer of a barrier that humanity created between ourselves and God. The overarching story of the Bible is one of God trying again and again to reconnect with his people, to break down those walls of pride that we put up. From the world's perspective, humility is a synonym for weakness. In connecting with God, that's absolutely the correct posture. But when engaging with the world, humility does not mean the subjugation of ourselves. The world preaches self-actualization, exaltation, to use a biblical word, through success, through strength, through works. Revelation shows us the true victory. Chapter 5, verse 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Humility enables us to flip the rules of the world on their head, and in doing so, we abdicate our pride and we put God back on his throne, the posture that allows us to receive God's love. Pride is something we grapple with every day of our lives. Me, right now. I have to talk, as Bam said, about being humble, It's a very potentially, you know, it's a proud thing to do. I have to stand in front of you and talk uninterrupted for half an hour. You're not even allowed to interrupt. I mean, you can, but society would frown, I guarantee. It's a honey trap for my pride. I have to guard against the voice of my ego that would say, that would have me believe that because I've read a few books and not sounded like an idiot when I repeat my inherited opinions to the right people, that I deserve to be here. I know that sounds like false modesty, but think about it this way. I had no control that I was born white, male, middle class, in England in the 20th century, with access to clean water, medicine, a solid roof. I had loving parents. They took me to church. They gave me a Bible. They prayed with me. Observing my kids, I feel like 90% of their character was built in, ready to go before they were even born. All we're doing as parents is tinkering around the edges. God knit me together. God put me in that family, in that country, in that time. The fact that I'm standing here now is mostly because of God's blessings given to me through my wife, my family, our school, our church, you guys. Even and especially the intellect that I've been freely given, that's my banana skin, imagining that even my intelligence is all down to me. Pride isn't taught. It's the result of that sinful urge to place ourselves at the center of the universe. One time, I'm glad he's not here. 
One time I told Paul, my son, to stop rocking on his stool. He was four, maybe five years old. If you don't stop rocking, I said, I'm going to sit you on the floor. If you sit me on the floor, he said, I'll rock the whole house. (laughs) Then you'll have to put me outside, and I'll rock the whole planet. Then you'll have to put me in space, and I'll rock the whole universe. You can't teach that. I had to write it down. It's just (laughs) insane. Before we can find beauty and humility, we must dismantle our pride. We've got to take ourselves out from the center of the universe. So that's what I'm talking about, finding the beauty, which at first means understanding our pride. Then we can understand humility, how we should apply it to God versus how we should apply it to one another. And then finding the beauty. What becomes of us when we remove our pride and become humble? So first, pride. It's central to our culture, the elevation of the individual, the elevation of the cultural group, the values you identify with. And Christians, of course, we're kind of susceptible to this. Those are the barriers that Adam and Eve first erected, and we're still working on them. If you place your pride in beauty, what happens? You worry about how you look. You can't go out unless you feel put together. You wind up hiding yourself away. If you place your value in other people, in friends, it's easy to let jealousy undermine your relationships. You fear losing your friends and you become sycophantic or overbearing or a doormat. You stop being yourself. Reputation. How many likes? How many shares? We lose boldness. We fear speaking the truth in case we offend anyone. Again, we're hiding. We wear a mask of self-assurance when in fact we're racked with uncertainty and self-doubt. So much of our self-worth is based on our career, how much we earn, the prestige of a particular job. But if work becomes the primary source of your identity, then keeping your job, it's a matter of survival. Every tiny misstep, a flub during a meeting, a mean email from a colleague, it threatens to destroy us. And then as parents, your success is often filtered through the success of your children. Our value becomes submersed in their achievements. What does that do to our relationship with them? It becomes goal-driven dictated by external factors beyond our control, and humility. It's, of course, possible to place your pride in humility. Look how caring I am, how hard I'm working to support other people. That's the humble brag, the Martha complex right there. Come and help me make make dinner, Mary. Stop wasting your time sitting at Jesus' feet. You just hear yourself? I can see some part of myself in all those things I've described, even beauty, I know this doesn't happen by mistake. The message I'm sending to the world is, I don't care about how I look. And yes, that's another form of pride. So how do you make a move? How do you ever achieve humility when everything can be reduced to a prideful insult? Prideful impulse. Beg your pardon. That kind of works. Tim Keller summed it up nicely when he said, real humility isn't thinking less of yourself it's thinking of yourself less. Those things I referenced and the many other things we pin our pride to, they're not bad in themselves, but they won't save us. And when we elevate them to where God should be, they prevent us from meeting him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, when I am weak, then I am strong. Look at all the great figures of the Old Testament. They either started humble, like David or Gideon or Ruth, Or they started great and God humbled them before they were ready to do his work. 
Daniel 4 describes King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler the world had ever seen at that time, surveying his kingdom and declaring, is not this the great Babylon that I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? In that moment, his sanity is taken from him and he's reduced to eating grass and living like a wild animal. He thought he was God and God made him think he was an animal. That's what pride does. It allows us to fool ourselves into thinking that these things we have, beauty, reputation, career, children, humility, that we achieve those things by the strength of our own hands. That's not a posture in which we can have a relationship with God or receive his good gifts. So in order to give us what we really need, God may have to strip those things away. I had pride in my career in the UK. It wasn't obvious in the way I carried myself, but... I always enjoyed the reflected kudos when I introduced myself to someone new, that I had a career at a well-known radio station, that I made adverts people recognized and occasionally enjoyed. I won awards in the UK and here in the US for my work. And even though I knew in theory, in my head, that my self-esteem didn't, shouldn't rely on those things, I still valued them in my heart. When I came to the US, it was really tough to find a job. Months and months, dozens of failed applications I started removing the list of awards I'd won from my resume. I worried that either it looked fake or that I was looking overqualified. And it was around that time that I landed my first editing work. And I still do freelance for that same studio. God has a plan for each of us. Don't let your pride become a roadblock to his blessings. Now, I'm not ashamed of those things that I achieved back then, but I feel grateful for them. And that's their proper context, gratitude. So moving on, what does the Bible say about humility? It's interesting, it's often twinned with exaltation. Matthew 23, verse 12. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's an important verse, it's repeated three times in the Gospels. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. It's an old-fashioned word. Who goes around exalting themselves these days? Well, have you ever taken pride in your looks, your career, your family, your intelligence? That's self-exaltation. So, Bible quiz. And the answer is not Jesus. Just you know. Which Old Testament figure described himself as the most humble person who ever lived, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth? It's not Hosea who got cheated on. It's not Elijah who got laughed at for being bald, or even Jonathan who willingly gave up his claim for the throne. Bam knows. Numbers 12, verse 3. Now Moses was a very humble man. More humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, it says. My first and pretty facetious thought when I read that was, didn't Moses write the book of Numbers himself? (laughs) Kind of a blatant humble brag there, mate. So first, it's worth remembering. Hebrew is a pictorial language. It speaks in vivid, bold metaphors. It hasn't got that technical precision of the New Testament. So we shouldn't let its hyperbole put us off. But it's clear. Moses' relationship with God is based in humility. We already know he was humble. He had a stutter. He needed Aaron to deliver his speeches. God exiled him two times from his people. Once as a baby and the second time after he'd killed an Egyptian. Yet as we saw... It's in God's character to reveal his strength in the weak, in the most unlikely people. 
learning humility was part of Moses' tutelage. When he was ready to be exalted, God revealed himself in the burning bush. God stripped away Moses' barriers right down to the sandals he was wearing. When we imagine Moses summoning plagues, parting the Red Sea, delivering the Ten Commandments, it's too easy to imagine Charlton Heston, and it's really unhelpful. Moses didn't do those amazing things. God did. Think about Steve Buscemi playing Moses, an old, old Steve Buscemi who mumbles his lines with an unfamiliar accent, gets overlooked on the award circuit. Moses was humble, and God exalted him. We are called to complete dependence. That means your career, your family, your character. We need to recognize that he sustains it all, that he's above all and he supersedes all that stuff. Psalm 25, verse 9. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. Do you know how difficult it is to teach a proud person something? It's impossible. I coach a little bit of soccer. The toughest kids to teach are the ones who think they know it all already. The nine-year-olds who won't stop dribbling the ball around and goofing off because they're training with seven, eight-year-olds. Have you ever noticed that pride is often only based on a favorable comparison with someone else? You can imagine how difficult those kids' attitudes would be if they were training with 13-year-olds. Humble, meek? You bet they'd be. If God has a lesson for us, sometimes he has to wait and wait until we've screwed up a few times before we're ready to listen, before we've acquired some humility. James 4, verse 6, he's quoting from the Psalms. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humility and fear are the appropriate starting points for our relationship with God. We don't deserve anything from God but his judgment. What's the world's attitude towards self-imposed humility? That's self-flagellation, the world says. You've worked hard, you earned it. No, you don't. Is there a mob outside waiting to beat us when we leave this church today? Are there vaccines available for us when we get sick? Can we wash our hands with soap before our next meal? Did we do any of that? The things we would take pride in count for nothing if it wasn't for God's provision and the work of those who came before us. Psalm 103 verse 2. Praise the Lord my soul and forget not all his benefits. A proud person can't praise the Lord. They don't need to. Pride won't allow it. You need humility to worship. No. But, says the world, you've worked hard to get where you are. Look at the people who aren't doing as well as you. That's not some fluke of circumstance. They just don't work as hard as you. They're not as smart as you. I'm not knocking hard work. But if you'd been born a slave in Persia in 400 BC, if you'd been conscripted into the German army to serve on the Eastern Front in 1941... If the plantation overseer doesn't like the color of your skin, work as hard as you like. Your chances just of surviving are very slim. We had no control over where we were born. We choose our comparisons. Pride chooses our comparisons very carefully. 1 Peter 5 verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. This may sound like I'm talking in primary colors a little, just to make the point, but pride can be insidious. It can masquerade as other things. I think that Leslie and I are afraid of ostentation, of having too much, of being seen to have too much. We're quietly mortified when friends come round and they see the amount of Lego that our children have amassed over the years. 
Our response is shame. It's an embarrassment of sharp plastic riches. When Paul tries to count how many sets he's got, we stop him. Don't do that. Don't do that, Paul. It sounds like you're bragging. Neither of us grew up like that, and we would rather be known for our thriftiness and our good stewardship. And there's another form of pride. Jeremiah 9.23 Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord. Recognizing God for who he is takes away both pride and shame. Humility allows us to put God on his throne and enables us to receive his grace freely given. Gratitude is where we land. So that's humility as it relates to God. How about humility to each other? In Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins talking about the laws. I've, come to abolish the, I've not come to abolish them, he says, but to fulfill them. In verse 17, and he goes through a bunch of different laws, raising the bar on every one of them. God's plan to strip away our pride, to pivot our hearts to, in humility towards him, moves from actions to intentions. In verse 21, do not murder becomes control your feelings of anger. Verse 27, do not commit adultery becomes do not look at anyone with lust in your heart. And then verse 38, you have heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn him the other also. To the world, this is madness. Anyone who dismisses Jesus as a wise man has not read the Sermon on the Mount. These are not beautiful platitudes. He's expressing the unattainable standards of God's kingdom. We need to receive God's grace. We can't rely on our behavior, our works, to make ourselves worthy of his kingdom. So what about when someone slaps you in the face, metaphorically or literally? If you believe in a world without God, then you need justice here and now. Hit them back. Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. It's a strange thing to say, and he has to be referring to this, these particular circumstances. He resisted injustice and evil many times. Paul in Romans 12:21 urges us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what's happening here. When the insult is to your pride, you can let that go. This tells us about humility. If someone strikes your right cheek, turn him the other also. Do you know what first century Jews used their right hands for? Eating, giving high fives, or their equivalent, most contacts with other people, and hitting. They used their left hands for wiping their bums. So how do you strike someone's right cheek? I wish I had Paul here for this. How do you strike someone's right cheek with your right hand? Well, you could walk around behind them, Three Stooges style, pang! But that's not what he's saying. Right hand, right cheek, it's a backhanded motion. It's not intended to cause pain, but to shame someone, to put them back in their place, to dishonor them publicly. If you then offer that person your left cheek, what are you saying? It's a challenge to their perceived social order. I will not be dismayed. I won't defend my pride by hitting back. But if you're going to try and shame me, 
you'll wind up shaming yourself. This doesn't look like the world's idea of humility at all. This is also different from the appropriate submissive humility to God. This is bold, I'm going to call out aggression for what it is humility. It's also a stepping back, it's taking control, it's drawing the heat out of a situation. The Bible uses two groups of words to describe humility. One is what we typically understand humility to be, lowliness, modesty, and that results in complete dependency on God. The other one, the one Jesus uses here, in the Greek, comes from the idea of a powerful wild animal that has been tamed, of great power held in check, voluntarily submissive. Turning the other cheek has become a byword for being a doormat. The real meaning of well-controlled power held in check When Christians do use their power, it should be for the benefit of others, not themselves. Real humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility allows God to do the judging and frees us up to love unconditionally. So that's humility from strength. Humility when you have the option to step back, but what about humility and weakness? What if your physical safety is under threat? What if you're facing injustice as an individual or as a community? Sometimes humbly stepping back isn't an option. I don't think being a Christian automatically means you're a pacifist. I know some people would disagree with that, but I think it comes from a misreading of that passage, the idea Christians ought to turn the other cheek even to the point of allowing aggression against the weak. A few years back, I heard the last few minutes of a presentation given to a group of youth workers about how to deal with a violent child in a classroom. The speaker told them to draw a clear distinction, not to say anything more than, we do not do that here. I was surprised that he didn't say something along the lines of, you must never hit anyone under any circumstances. You don't know what these kids' home life is like, he said. Some of these kids may have to hit back just to protect themselves, just to get out of a situation. Humility and weakness is all tied in with that big, contentious, terrifying question. What does a good and all-powerful God, why does a good and all-powerful God allow bad things to happen? Brief digression. Imagine how the world would look if God did step in, in and did stop every bad thing from happening, there'd be no free will. True, evil people wouldn't have the opportunity to do evil things, but we couldn't love each other. If there's no free will, then there's no love, because if you have no choice whether to love someone or not, if it's hardwired in, then it's not really love, is it? If the world has already put you in a place of humility, your challenge is not to allow your circumstances to embitter you against your oppressors, I should recognize out loud at this point that as a white, middle-aged British man, that I'm like the poster boy for generational privilege. My modern world has insulated me from all the obvious forms of oppression, so I have to look elsewhere for examples. Today, when we think of oppression, we, quite rightly, might think of the civil rights movement, of Black Lives Matter. Martin Luther King Jr. said this, the darkness of racial injustice be dispelled only by the light of forgiving love. We are tempted to become bitter and retaliate with a corresponding hate. But if this happens, the new order we seek 
will be little more than a duplicate of the old. We must in strength and humility, there it is, those two things, strength and humility meet hate with love. I think Christians in the West are too quick to hide behind the first version of humility, the one reserved for God, submissive, self-effacing. And that's what the world sees. We need to apply that second strength-held-in-reserve version of humility to our lives. That puts us in the place where we can oppose the evil of the world in confidence. Our American mascot is the eagle. It always looks pretty menacing. It's a bird of prey, powerful, agile, swift, bringing death and dominion from on high. England has a lion. Pretty sure they're not native to the UK, but who's quibbling? It's a lion. The Russian bear, the French rooster. I've never really understood the French. Even the New Zealanders, the most passive, reasonable nation of people you can imagine. Watch them play rugby. Before they start, the players perform the haka. It's a native Maori war dance to intimidate their victims. It's all crazy eyes sticking out tongues and yelling alpha male behavior from New Zealand. You know what a Christian symbol might be? to represent our character, our spirit. Revelation 5, verse 6. I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Then verse 11. I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise, all those things that our pride craves to acquire under our own resources. This is the inversion of what the world understands as power. The strength available to the weak comes from the lamb who was slain. The woman who puts two coins in the offering gives more than the rich man with bags of money. The boy who squandered his inheritance is welcomed into the feast while the proud older brother grumbles and excludes himself. The king is crucified beside criminals. Philippians 2 verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself. He took his power, his greatness, his glory, holding it all in check, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So finally, where is the beauty of humility? When we shed our pride, when we operate from a place of humility and gratitude toward God, we're stripping away the barriers that humanity has erected since the fall. We don't have to worry about beauty if God's love fulfills you. You don't have to impress your friends when you know God is already impressed with you. Your reputation with God was settled before your first good deed. Your career doesn't define you. Your tastes, your opinions, your intelligence, identity, your thriftiness... Those things are a result of God's love for you. Don't turn them into idols. My life as a parent is far less stressful when I remember that I'm not the one with ultimate responsibility for my children's upbringing. When I remember that God is in charge, that God is the one shaping them, I'm more patient, I'm more humble, I'm less quick to anger. The weight I put on my own shoulders, the comparison puts on my own shoulders is tougher to bear. Take my yoke upon you, says Jesus in Matthew 11, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my my yoke is easy, and my burden is light.
when we dethrone our pride, we start to operate in humility according to our original design. And like the prodigal son, it's a homecoming.